Welcome to Mediation Today, a program brought to you by Vesnatsa Tichanin, a Canberra lawyer and mediator. Every episode introduces an experienced Australian mediator to talk about mediation training, development, ethics and practice. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the ACT land, the Ngunnawal people. Welcome to Mediation Today. In today's episode, my guest is Dr. Rosemary Howell. Dr. Howell holds a title of a Doctor of Judicial Science from the University of Technology, Sydney. She is an accredited administrator under the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator Scheme, an NMS accredited mediator, and chairman of her company, Strategic Action, since 1985. Good morning, Rosemary, and thank you for accepting my invitation for this program. Thank you, Vesna. It's a privilege to be invited. Oh, thank you. Rosemary has over 30 years of experience as a lawyer, strategic planner, educator and CEO. She is admitted to practice as a solicitor in Victoria in New South Wales and has served a term as the Secretary General of the Law Council of Australia. Rosemary's professional expertise in strategic planning, facilitation and tertiary education has focused on enhancing the quality of professional and legal services through leadership roles in the legal profession's governing bodies, professional engagement in alternative dispute resolution techniques, and engagement in higher education. Rosemary, in 2005, you were awarded your Doctorate of Judicial Science for your work on negotiating with lawyers, a qualitative study of the experience of those for whom and with whom lawyers negotiate. Would you please tell us what prompted you to undertake this research? I have to say that I had absolutely no idea what I was putting my hand up for. And had I known, I don't think I would have been so bold. But I was very lucky because at that time I was doing a Master's of Dispute Resolution. And to my pleasure and surprise, I was completing that Master's with a high distinction average. And the professor in charge of that program Professor Jennifer David said to me that she was very anxious for me to continue studying and to do a doctorate. And I felt very inadequate and I was sure I really had no idea what to do. But she had so much faith in me and she was so encouraging that I actually put my hand up and got started. And I'm enormously grateful to Jennifer because she saw something in me then that I didn't really have the courage to see and it served me so well in my life. I saw myself as a lawyer. I've never, ever seen myself as having any academic pretensions. And I was astonished that anyone would push me in that direction. How did you perform your research? And what were the attitudes of those who you worked with in your research? Well, as it turned out, I was extraordinarily ambitious because I decided to perform empirical research. In other words, I was doing research with real people and I was conducting a whole range of focus groups using grounded theory, which as far as the law school was concerned, was something from another planet. I was following a process that would have been much more suited to a PhD than to a doctor of juridical science in the law school, only I didn't know it at the time. And sometimes not knowing what you don't know 
is a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> I believe so, yes. I think the law school thought I was a bit of a mutant and really had no understanding of what I was going about. And I was learning as I was going along as well because focus groups are very difficult to run. I started in the days when there was no internet and word processing was pretty primitive. And so there was no software to help me manage the data and it was a huge manual effort. And I was doing it at a time when I was working full-time in my practice and I had teenage children at home and I was looking after my mother-in-law who lived with us and I was insane business. I was mad. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I've done some studies during uh, my full-time work and being a mother of young children and I always sympathize with everyone who undertakes something that is so extraordinary. So was it at the time when you were already a mediator or it was before your mediation practice? It was before I had fallen in love with mediation. I had been to Harvard and I had studied in the Harvard program on negotiation and I'd had the privilege of being invited back with my husband by Professor Roger Fisher to be teaching assistants in his program and then my husband who was the chair of the business section of the Law Council persuaded Fisher to come to Australia and we talked with him all around Australia. So you can see a love affair was developing, but it, but it started from the focus on negotiation rather than anything else. So yes. wasn't that an interesting way to begin? Yes, definitely. Uh, someone might say it was the other way around. Sometimes people start with mediation and then sort of expand into something different, broader. Yes, that is, and they might say that, Vizna, but actually I think I began the right way around. I think negotiation proves itself to be the foundation for everything else. And you would be aware that um, I interviewed uh, Shirley, our common um, colleague or acquaintance, and um, you were saying, I saw one of your comments that you didn't know about her um, professional um, sort of trajectory. And she also had something to do with Professor Roger Fisher, and, and she went to Harvard as well. Did you know Shirley Kirshner at that time as well? I knew her peripherally at that time, but I, think, I certainly didn't know the extraordinary adventures she was having with people like Stella Cornelius. Cornelius. Um, Shirley's absolutely remarkable. She believes anything is possible. You just have to put your mind to it. Yes, I agree. Let's let's go back just a step. What were the key findings, if you can somehow in a few sentences tell us, and how do you see these findings translate into the reality of our generally negotiating environments? My findings are lawyer-specific, mm-hmm. and I think they offer the opportunity to lawyers for some very significant learning. And although I published in 2005, I don't think much has changed since then. So I think the findings remain relevant and they offer an opportunity for lawyers to do things differently and better, which I don't think many lawyers have yet accepted. Do you think they would be aware of it? Sorry for interrupting. No, no, that's okay. I, I do think they have the opportunity to be aware of it but I'm not sure 
when they get the feedback that they necessarily listen to it. I was fascinated to, because mainly I talked to commercial clients of law firms, and they said very significant things like they considered lawyers to have poor communication skills, to be positional bargainers, to be very focused on power and control, to fail to value developing and maintaining good working relationships. So there's a, there's a whole range of things that, that lawyers had the opportunity to listen to and think about. And clients said really fascinating things like lawyers don't think strategically, they think tactically. So they're very good, very good at thinking about what am I going to do and how and by when. But they're not very good at answering the why question. And of course, all strategy lies in the why question, which is why I think clients say lawyers aren't very strategic. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Knowing these things, would that be, I mean, would it be useful for mediators to know how to approach lawyers if it comes to a situation where, where we need to deal with them directly? Well, I wonder if I can give you the long answer to that question because it's a really good question. I think if mediators recognize that lawyers have a tendency not to be strategic, it's very useful for mediators to help lawyers focus on that why question mm. because lawyers themselves, as my research showed, tend to be positional bargains. They focus on what their clients want, what their legal rights are, rather than what their underlying interests are. And I think that explains why quite a lot of lawyers engage in a fight and risk leaving a lot of value for their clients on the table. So I think it's a really important lesson for mediators. If they can engage lawyers more deeply in this why question, why does your client, I understand what your client wants, explain to me why it's so important. Because the moment you move into the why field, there are many more things that will satisfy the why question than will satisfy the what question. Yeah. If that makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, the why question is so powerful. And, you know, when we are very, very young, we are not aware how powerfully we actually ask why this and why that. And then we lose. We seem to be losing that ability to be completely open to hearing an answer to that why question. I think you're right. And I think the companion piece to that is... We, we are foregoing the opportunity to reflect on that answer. Because once people give us the why and we reflect on it, we have the opportunity to brainstorm and explore all kinds of ideas that we don't have when people have their mind closed and assert that there's only one way to solve their issues. Dear listeners, my guest today is Dr. Rosemary Howell, and she's been telling us about her research into mediation and negotiating with lawyers. Rosemary, I would like to ask you a question about your perspectives on mediation and the messages you teach your students, and how do they react to your messages? So my message is that mediation is not a process in a box. I think there's a continuum of processes and I think it's useful to see mediation as part of that continuum. And I also see that mediation is grounded very strongly in negotiation theory and practice. 
So I start my students with an understanding of what principle negotiation and then I show them how they might use those tools as process guides in facilitating conflict resolution. And the students really get it. They're just remarkable. And they, they're very happy to see the connectedness between processes. They don't like the idea of different boxes. And they like the idea of mediation being underpinned by rigorous strategic thinking. Mm. You know that Michael Klug, who is one of our recognized and well-known negotiators and lawyers negotiators, I interviewed him and he had a very similar approach to an understanding um, to yours. He was also saying that, yes, there is negotiation and there is mediation, but mediation can't, uh, can't exist without negotiation, pretty much. Do you agree? Well, Michael and I were at Harvard together the first time I went. Uh-huh. And I think we've had, we had this similar eye-opening experience of seeing how three-dimensional negotiation is and how it offers insight into all kinds of processes. So I absolutely agree with Michael, and he's certainly one of the godfathers of negotiation and mediation in this country. I feel so privileged to be talking to you, Rosemary, because you are in the heart of everything that's happening in this country around mediation. And I would like to ask you, what has made more impact on how you see this whole field of activity, alternative dispute resolution, let's say, with all its facets? Was it your academic research or was it your practice that influenced you more? I think my academic work got my brain going Mm -hmm. and started me asking questions and listening and thinking. But I think as my journey has progressed, the piece that influenced me most was figuring out where I actually add value. Because I think each of us has different gifts and I'm not really the person to be a mediator in a mediation where there are, where there's a huge cause of action and there are 25 lawyers in the room and the mediation is just another forum for a legal fight. I don't add value there. And I've figured out that where I add value is in the early intervention space where really important relationships are threatened, like between a CEO and a board or between a really significant supplier and a manufacturer. And where I do my best work is I'm brought in in those circumstances where there starts to be tension and a problem in a relationship that's clearly going to lead to conflict. And I can help to head it off at the pass. So figuring out that I fit well there and I have skills that work there has been a wonderful thing for me. I feel blessed that I actually found my spot because I think those of us who are happiest on the planet are people who've found out what we were brought here to do. And I feel I found my spot, if that doesn't sound too corny. Do you think you're a peacemaker? I do think I'm a peacemaker, but there's another piece I would like to add, and that is I'm not supporting peace at any cost or at any price because I think alongside having a goal of being a peacemaker, 
My job is to help people to sit with conflict because people who are very conflict averse tend to shy away from conflict, give in easily and early, to fail to develop the skills to speak up and to name what's happening and to set boundaries. So I am a peacemaker, but I think I'm a, I'm a peacemaker with principles around learning to define your boundaries and to understand that not all conflict is bad. Sometimes conflict presents a creative friction from which we're all challenged to learn. I am worried that I might bring in something that is very acute, but I can't resist. The most recent developments around the Parliament House and staffers and various ministers, that's a disaster that was waiting to happen. Um, How do you see that, if you don't mind commenting? I don't mind commenting. I need to acknowledge I went to a march with my adult daughter. as a great privilege. I need to acknowledge I'm very angry. And I think this is a terribly serious issue confronting our country. And I think the other part of negotiation and mediation and peacemaking it raises is some things are not negotiable. And I think in our repertoire as peacemakers and conflict advisors, we also need to have an understanding of what we're not prepared to compromise about. And I think that's what's front and centre in my mind at the moment. Thank you for that. And the reason I asked you was when you indicated your second song, you said Big Girls Cry by Sia. And you said that that's because you were angry as you participated in the march with your daughter. So would you like to tell us more about your experience there? Well... I, I do choose to, ch- to share. I, I have a family history that is very painful for me in terms of sexual misbehaviour and pain and not being believed. And I choose to believe that every terrible thing that happens to you, if you can find a way to turn it over and to think what was the learning from it, then it wasn't entirely in vain. And I think what it taught me was there is nothing more significant and powerful than giving people the gift of being listened to and sitting with them and being present with them in conflict and pain. So I am very angry because I don't feel listened to and I'd like to think that's the message to our parliament that unless it can find a way genuinely to listen to us, our trust and confidence will never be returned. So that's why I sit at the moment. I hope that's not too shocking. Thank you so much for that. I do need to ask you, you don't mind because you said you chose to you choose to share, so you don't mind me keeping that in the program. Ah, oh, that's very respectful of you, Vesna. I've I've made a conscious decision to talk about it because I think Many of us women are joined together by our stories and each time we 
don't share our story, we're missing a link. So I'm guided by how you feel I expressed mm. it. So I would accept your advice. But it doesn't trouble me to share it, no. Thank you. Thank you for being so open and so generous. I'm touched. I'm deeply touched. Um, I would like to try to close this discussion, this conversation now, and I'm... I know what the question is, darling. I know what it is. Yes. I think the question is, how do I feel about the future? Yes, please, tell us. I would like to tell you how I feel about the future because I am enormously encouraged. For the past 15 years, I've taken a team of students to Paris for the most important mediation competition in the world. And those students are amazing. They get it. They've taken it to the next place. They understand what mediation is and what it's for, and they are advocates for best practice. And I already see some of those now out in practice, and I watch what they're doing and the influence that they're having, and I have enormous confidence about their transformative powers. So I'm so proud of this generation, and I'm very confident. When I hear you now, I'm confident that, yes, our practice and our industry has future because these young people are going to take it forward. Yes, they're unstoppable and they have ethics yes. and morality and they have repertoire and they're going to shake it up. Good on you, Rosemary. Thank you so much. No, it's just been a privilege to do this business. I've loved doing it. Thank you. Thank you so much, dear listeners. This was Dr. Rosemary Howell. It was my privilege to interview you, Rosemary. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your sincerity. And thank you for being so open with us and our listeners. Dear listeners, I'll be with you next Tuesday with our next guest. Goodbye.